0: Okay, that's it. How many of you are ready to do some Sermon on the Mount work? Two. Two people. Okay, for two of us in here, we are going to have a blast. If any of you else want to join in, you're welcome to join in with us. But if you you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so, and here's the other thing that I think about this, that not only is Jesus teaching us possibilities, but he's believing that these are the kinds of things that are going to guide us to what it looks like to be more human okay? Um, He's not looking, I don't think God's looking for angels that float around above the ground. I think God's looking for human beings who will take these kinds of things seriously and open their hearts and be healed in the ways that they need to be healed and then reflect that and live this out in the world in some kind of way. Now, one thing I just want you to know, it's where we get the notion that being spiritual is something other than being human in the way that God made us, I don't know where that came from. Because as Christians, we believe in incarnation. We believe God came from the heavens to what? To earth. Well, why do human beings think the spiritual thing is going from earth to heaven or, or, you know, floating around above earth in some way? We take our cues from Jesus. And if being human was good enough for God to come and embody and incarnate, then perhaps our hearts can awaken to being human is what's best for us. And it's the goal. But there's a particular way of being human that we're being invited to. And I think these texts help us so much. So it's, it just takes, it takes an open heart. But let me read three verses today. And then I got three observations that I want to share with you of what I think Jesus wants us to take out of these. And I say think because I'm limited, but I'm going to share what I've taken away from it. You might have some more to add to it, and I welcome that. But uh, just three observations, and then I want to land on just one thing on what this might mean for how we live it out individually and how we might live this out in community. So let's start by reading uh, three verses here. Matthew 5, verse 17. It says this. Do not think, these are Jesus' words, I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I truly, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, which are about to follow in these next few chapters, and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great, in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we're all about here is not just teaching something, but something that we can practice. He says, that they're the ones that will be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Three passages, three passages loaded with stuff that could be helpful to all of us on our journey. Okay, my first observation. Is this And Karen, if you put up that first slide, um, I want you to think about these words because Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So um, these are things that have been important in my own journey. They're important to people that I look at and I I see the way they live their lives and the way they follow Christ. And I see how they work these things, how they bring um, the past and the present together in some way. Um, We want to be a church that's rooted in faith but also living it out in a changing world that holds those things together. Um, The ways that I've said it before is it's like having this sacred memory of remembering where we've come from. We're a part of this beautiful tradition, and there's a lot of good. Um, The world is different because of Christianity and because of churches. Yes, there's a lot of things that we can look at and go, yeah, they've also shamed Uh, And there's a lot of things that have hurt the world too. But overwhelmingly, Christianity has been good for the world. It's been good for human thriving. Um, Christianity has helped schools develop. We've led in uh, medical advances and caring for people. Christianity is important to giving the rootedness in people's lives to be the human beings that we were made to be. That's what incarnation is. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. So having this sacred memory of perhaps where we've been and all the people that have come before us, we, we, we should not have that much, be that arrogant to think that we can't borrow from people that have come before us. But we can also have holy imagination where, where we're taking this rooted faith and we're living it out. In a beautiful way, where God's spirit, and maybe it looks a little bit different. But for us, and for what I think Jesus is inviting us in this text, when he says, hey, I didn't come to abolish what's come before me. I've come to fulfill it. Now, what happens from that point on looks a little different than it did before, but you see Jesus honoring the past. So here's just two ways I think we could go with this. Um, Some of us can go, hey, the past is, you know, it's the goal. And we got to hold on to the past. And, um, you know, if, if we don't, then we're being distracted in some way. I see, I see people make these kind of moves or, or Christian communities make this kind of move. Like, let's not be, be distracted by anything in the present. Um, and then sometimes it even goes worse where they see the present as being a threat to the past. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's exactly what we're doing. But I see the other side too. It's people who live in the present without any regard for the past. And it's almost like it's outdated or it's not fashionable. And the only thing that truly matters and, and is you know what's current and what's right in front of us. And I think both of these moves, in some ways, miss it. Because this is not what Jesus is doing in these texts. He's trying to bring these things together. So we look a little bit at the past. We look at our rooted faith and what needs to be brought forward. And here's what I've discovered. I've discovered there are so many things that I have forgotten and we have forgotten. And um, I want to I re-engage them. But there's also so many things that God's Spirit is doing that we, we can change. We can have a holy imagination and see things a little bit differently, but yet stay rooted in our Christian faith. So uh, I just want to say that I think that's what Jesus is working out in this, the, the tension of this, and I think we could do it well. Um, but this is the question of every church in every generation, is how do we bring these two things together? And that takes effort, it takes work. Okay, my second observation, it's this. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that is just a fascinating text, because when you think about the Pharisees, they were the ones that were so dedicated They were faithful. They get a bad rap in our current culture, but they were actually very, very faithful to honor their tradition in in ways that they thought that they were honoring God. And here's what they're known for. They're known for doing everything right. It's almost like um, Jesus is saying this, if I could put it in a modern vernacular or in a, uh, a sports analogy. It's like he's saying the pitcher that threw the perfect game, you gotta be better than them. Like, that that seems like a really, really high bar, because how do you do better than the pitcher that pitched the perfect game? So I think what Jesus is saying in this, he's saying that I think he's not he's not, he doesn't want to undo the law, but what he does see is that they have these rigid, superficial interpretations of the law that miss more important matters, and so... What Jesus is trying to do, he's trying to restore the law back to its place of integrity. And, and, and let me give you an example. Um, I think it's in, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story <clears throat> where there's a, a guy with uh, shriveled up hands. And um, he's, they're, they're gathered in, in worship. And everyone's ignoring this guy with shriveled up hands. And Jesus shows up. And so the religious leaders are going, hmm, what's Jesus going to do here? Looks like this guy needs healed, but he's not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And so it's almost like they're they're leaning back. They want to see him get trapped. Does this guy honor the law and not do anything on the Sabbath? So I love what Jesus does. He always does this kind of stuff. But he tells the man to stand up and and to hold up his hands. And he asks the question to these religious leaders. He says, is it more lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Like he totally turns the whole question. Is it, he says, is it better um, to kill or to give life on the Sabbath? So, what Jesus does here is he takes something that sincere, honest people, because they're not bad people, they're faithful people that are trying to honor the tradition that they've been given, but yet they cannot see with holy imagination or they can't see the changing world in front of them in a way that this law perhaps could be lived out in a way that shows its deeper meaning. And Jesus is wrestling with this, and these religious people are wrestling with it. So Jesus teaches us this, if anything, that we can hold on to our rooted faith and have the sacred memory, and we can also, at the same time, have a holy imagination of how God could work in a way we've never seen Him work before, or how we can live this out in a changing world that does show us the deeper meaning of that law. And uh, before we leave here today, I want to kind of zero in on what that is. What is the deeper meaning? I think the deeper meaning for Jesus was, does this actually help people? Does this actually bring healing to their lives? Does this actually help them live into the human beings that they were made to be? And if it wasn't, then that law could move a little bit in a way that would bring that about in people's lives. So if you're one of those that's fearful of... You know, if something changes, then we're we're letting go of something that's essential. Um, I think it's very possible. I think Jesus teaches that here. If you're one of those that think, hey, it's only the latest current thing that, you know, is really valid or meaningful, can I just challenge you and say that there are there's these beautiful things in this tradition that if we will open our hearts to, we'll discover how meaningful they are to our journey, how meaningful they are to being human. So, Jesus looks at these Pharisees, and here's the sad thing. He doesn't see anything in them worth emulating because they're missing the deeper truth. And the Pharisees, they, without knowing it, with with actually with good hearts, I think they're obscuring the law. And Jesus is doing this. He wants to just restore it back to what God intended it to be. Okay, my third observation. Are you guys still with me? Everyone okay? Looking around, I see you smiling. I think we're good. Um, Here's uh, another way I want you to think about this. Um, Jesus in these texts are inviting us to what is absolutely possible for us as human beings on our individual journey, what's absolutely possible for the world we live in. Now, here's the truth. Sometimes I look at myself and this inner part of my heart and I wonder if it's enough. I wonder if I can be what it is that God seemingly is inviting me to become. And so I wrestle with that on, on occasion. So I think as human beings, we're going to wrestle. Can, can, we, can I really live into that you know, personally and, and in my own journey? But equally, sometimes... We become overwhelmed with what's happening in the world around us and all the ways that we all know this just can't be the way. This can't be the right way. Like, this isn't what it means to be image-bearing human beings in the world that we live in. And so we struggle with, and we can be overwhelmed with, like, is it really possible? Can the world change for good? And I just want to say this. I believe with all my heart that, the reminder of this here in this text is that, yes, it is possible. So if you're broken in some way, if you feel like you're not worthy, or this couldn't possibly be true about you, or if you're just overwhelmed with despair that the world cannot change, um, can I just say, let's just start with us. Let's start with these, the soil of our own hearts and go, how can it change? And see what we experience in that. And then when we gather in a place like this, what happens when we encourage each other on to that and we start loving each other in the way that we hope the world would be? Let's just let's take care of what's nearest us and what we can, and let's trust a larger work to God. But I do think that what he's saying in this text is that this is very possible. And here's another thing. In the Jewish tradition, generally, um, And it is impossible to understand the teachings and the words of Jesus without understanding uh, Jewish culture and the Jewishness of Jesus. But they did not generally dwell on how broken people were or how sinful people were. Um, In general, the Jewish culture began in a whole different place. And um, can I tell you, the Bible begins in a book called Genesis. And it's this beautiful creation poem. And God creates human beings, and he says this. He says, they are good. They are made in my image. And for the first time, of all the things that God creates, he even goes this far. He looks at human beings, and he says, they are very good. And then just a couple chapters later, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have what we call the fall, where human beings discover that they they have freedom. They can have autonomy from God. They can make choices that are disruptive and destructive to that divine image. But I think in a Jewish context, and I believe through this Jewish rabbi that we call Savior and that we worship, I think he begins at the place of goodness. I don't think we could truly become who we are if we don't start from this place of goodness. Now. I don't think we could fully get there without looking at our brokenness. I don't think we could fully get there without looking how sin can be so disruptive and destructive to God's intention. But once again, I think where you start vastly affects where you end up. And so I think it's important that if we're going to really listen and embrace the description of the life of the people gathered by Jesus and around Jesus that we come back to starting from this place of goodness. So if it's impossible for you to see goodness in yourself, um, man, would you please let me know? i got to have a coffee with you. Because we got to help each other find that centering, that rootedness that begins in this place where God says, no, very good, very good. Because that is where the life and the energy... And if you could experience God's love there, you won't be afraid to look at the broken parts of our lives. Or the parts of your heart that is holding you back. So it's within the context of that that I think we can grow, we can heal, we can be transformed. But we have to go back to that. Karen, I want to put up, here's the way this guy says it, Thomas Merton. He says, these are then, I suggest, three possible ways of dealing with the meeting of the past with the present. The first lets the past suffocate the present. The second drowns the past in the present. The third lets the two meet in a tension that ultimately is creative for allowing the present freely to challenge the past and the past to scrutinize the present. Do you see that move there? With equal freedom makes possible the emergence of truth that is at once vibrant and alive. So I don't know, I bump into people all the time, and sometimes I'm conflicted within myself that thinks you got to pick a side here. And I think what this is inviting us to is what Jesus is saying. It's like, no, true, true vibrance and liveness is when you could look at the present and freely challenge the past and allow the past to scrutinize the present. I think we can find the balance of that. Okay, so here's where I want to end. I want to end with this. We are tuned like an instrument. Now, if I picked up this guitar and began to play it, it would sound out of tune. Because I got this secretion that comes off my fingers and makes guitar sound out of tune. No, I don't really. I just can't play a guitar. Um, but if, if, if what God intends and what Jesus is inviting us to in this is going to become a symphony, if it's going to become salt and light and this song that changes the world around us, we have to be tuned to the right key. So that's what I'm saying here. So in, in Jesus' Jewishness, he's gonna start with to remind us that you're made in goodness. You are tuned to the key of goodness. And I think just being reminded of that and being grounded in that, it changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we interpret these scriptures. So It's going to be hard to get there if we don't allow a little tuning to go on in our heart and know that we're being tuned to the key of goodness. I want to flip real quick to one passage in in Matthew that um, kind of sums up what I'm I'm trying to say here. But we're looking at just three chapters in Matthew, 5, 6, and 7. But uh, I'd read through the whole book of Matthew because the rest of the book of Matthew is Jesus living this out. If you have to wonder, is this true? Is this a true way to live? Just look at Jesus. Look at the way he interacts with people. Look at the rest of this book and see that Jesus isn't just, he's not just a talker. Like Jesus is living this out. And what, what you're discovering is the people that he's encountering, the, people's, the people that his, his hands and his heart and his presence is touching, they're transformed in this beautiful way. And they're drawn to him, not repelled by him. They're drawn. They want to be around him. Because he's speaking something that is going to the depth of their heart and being, and they're finding it good and beautiful. All right. Matthew 22. Uh, Jesus is uh, he's having this discussion with the Pharisees, and one of, they call them the experts uh, in the law. One of these Pharisees speaks up and tested him with a question. And here was their question. They said, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? We're talking about, right? He didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, right? So he gets asked this question from from the Pharisees. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Am I choking you up, Debbie? (laughs) Go ahead let it out. (laughs) Um, All of the law hangs on these two commands. What was it? Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So if the law seems confusing to you, Jesus narrows it down very simply here. Are you loving God with all your heart? I think it would be good if you would open your heart to that and pursue that. Are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? Well, first, you've got to be able to love yourself. And if you can't see goodness in yourself, it's going to be hard to love yourself. So here's, here's what I just want to end with. I want to end with the possibility of this, that perhaps what we really need to do is learn how to love a little more deeply. Um, I'm gonna, here's, here's, this guy said it this way and I think this is so helpful because often we think as Christians let me say this often I see an impulse in Christians that the world's so horrible and it's all the world's fault you know, it's, it's all the liberalism it's all this, it's all that that's affecting the world and I, I don't think Jesus will buy that if we were to make that argument for him like it's the world's problem you know, they're robbing us of the sacredness of this experience of being human and the world that we live in. I think Jesus would, would argue, I don't, I think, how, how <laughs> I think he might question how good we are at being salt and light. I think he might question how good we are fulfilling and living this out. But listen, listen to the way this guy says it. He says, it is customary to blame secular science or anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. But listen to this. He says, it would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Think about this. And I've been a part of creating some of those defeats by what I represented at times in life. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. Insipid, by the way, is to lose its savior. savor. What, what are we talking about? Jesus talking to... Like, Stacia talked about it for one week. I talked about it for one week. It's about there is a saltiness in life that gives life and the experience of life its savor. That's our responsibility. Jesus looks at us and goes, what's happening in the world around you has a lot to do with how you're living out these things. But then he goes on, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority, Rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Who is the responsibility on? And we'll we'll figure it out as we continue to go here. What we're going to discover, it is upon us. But once again, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. Jesus actually believes that we can do this. And the world can be the way God made it. But it's going to take some people who trust in that. And give themselves fully to it. Okay, one story, and then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray for us. Very early on in Christianity, there was this guy by the name of, of Origen. And Origen of uh, Alexander, and he was the second, third century, the late second century and the third, right as the church, before the church was actually, you know, the, um, the government religion in Rome. So uh, this was a real key time in the development of Christianity. And uh, he was a Bible scholar a theologian. And in the Greek world back then, um, the Greeks, they had this philosophy. And it was what was shaping the world. And so there was this debate going on between Greek philosophers and Bible scholars and theologians and this guy, Origen, who was a philosopher. And they would have these debates. Because what the Greeks were saying, there's no place for Christianity. Christianity doesn't help the world become better christianity has no place of relevance in the human heart or in the human transformation or development and so people like Origen were debating and arguing in the, in a, in a uh, very meaningful way going "No, oh, wait a minute christianity is relevant it can be helpful and so um and he came up with these great philosophical arguments you go back and read some of his letters writing to the critics of christianity we're talking second third century if you go back and read it it is fascinating this guy is brilliant, and he has wonderful arguments for why Christianity needs to have a place in our world. But in one of these letters, writing to one of his critics, he said this, and this is what I want us to end on and what I want to leave us with today. He said something like this after all these great arguments. He said, but how about this? Why don't you show up at one of our churches and come see how we love He has all these brilliant arguments, but then there's this moment where it's kind of like he drops the rope and goes, arguing isn't gonna help. You know, they're just throwing back things, and he throws out this. Why don't you come to one of our churches and see how we love? Now, I don't know what you're wrestling with, I don't know what you're wrestling with in people around you, but what if we were those kind of people? I get asked a lot of time, what do you believe? You know, can you give us your set of beliefs? Well, that's a real long list. because And the truth is, some of us see things a little bit differently. Um, you know what I want to start telling people? I'll do my best to share how I see things, but could you just come and see how we love? Could we be those kind of people that would trust in that and we would invite people, just come see how we love and we'll work out all the rest of the stuff. Maybe you could say it like this, and this is just what I want to leave you with. We have the privilege and calling of showing the world how we love.